Hello and welcome back to the JPO Podcast. This is Carter Clement, broadcasting from Children's Hospital in beautiful uptown New Orleans. And as usual, we'll bring you featured articles and interviews with authors from this month's print issue of the Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics. To start things off, I'll hand it over to my co-host, Josh Holt from the University of Iowa, who will be sitting down with Dr. Sukin Shaw to discuss his recent research on multimodal pain control. Well, we are excited to welcome to the program Dr. Sukin Shaw from the Nemours DuPont Hospital for Children in Wilmington, Delaware. Dr. Shaw, it's great to have you on the program, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, thanks very much, Josh. It's a pleasure to be here. Why don't you just go ahead and kick us off and explain your study entitled Evaluation of Gabapentin and Clonidine Use in Children Following Spinal Fusion Surgery for Idiopathic Scoliosis, a retrospective review. Well, thanks, Josh. As you know, the um, issue with narcotics, the opioid epidemic, and both patient and family concerns about pain control makes this really a sensitive and hot-button issue. So we've been um, innovative in post-op pain control for probably a decade now. We have some really dedicated anesthesiologists that are willing to try new things, and also they're good at studying these things. And we've had the electronic medical record be available to us to store a lot of this data. What we were interested in is a multimodality pain program to get our idiopathic patients through surgery. And with the ultimate goals of shortening length of stay, decreasing the side effects of narcotics, and trying to limit the use of narcotic to the first postoperative day. So this was a retrospective study because as indicated uh, in the study period, we modified our pain regimen over time. The first group contemporaneously was a little bit older. That was a PCA-only group. The second group, we added gabapentin. And in the third group, they had PCA, gabapentin, and we had added clonidine in the form of a transdermal patch. The patient demographics were very similar, as you would expect, in a homogeneous group of idiopathic scoliosis patients, uh, similar age, BMI, and fusion levels. And it was all a single surgeon series, all at our institution. So we had control over many variables that a multicenter trial would be deficient in. And about 40 so odd patients per group for a total of 127 patients. And briefly, our findings indicated what we really set out to do and confirmed our hypothesis. With the addition of gabapentin, patients had better pain control. But with gabapentin and clonidine on top of our typical pain control program, we found that they used less morphine from the PCA on post-op day one. They had more demand-free hours. That is, they weren't hitting the PCA at night for up to almost three hours in some cases. And we can talk more about that, what that demand-free hours might indicate. And furthermore, the clonidine and gabapentin group also took orals faster, ambulated faster, and their length of stay was a day less. And so in all parameters that we judge patient outcomes after surgery, we were hitting all the right targets. And in terms of side effects and other unintended consequences, you can look at things like sedation and nausea, vomiting, or breakthrough pain. And the side effects were similar in all groups. We didn't see any, notably, we didn't see any more sedation in the uh, clonidine group, which is something that might be some people are concerned about, but we didn't see any increased sedation when even adding gabapentin with clonidine. So we thought the results were indicative of what we are trying to do here in terms of controlling pain through non-narcotic modalities and using different adjuncts that work in different ways to ultimately decrease the pain requirement and then decrease the number of morphine equivalents used during their hospital stay. Well, thank you very much for that review and congratulations on a study well done. 
I think you guys did a great job and went a long way to show that within the immediate post-operative period, the addition of gabapentin and clonidine can certainly help our patients to require less narcotic pain medications without adding additional side effects of fatigue or sleepiness and help them to get a better night's sleep without being up all night hammering their PCA button. What do you think that does for a patient to be able to get a good night's sleep that post-operative day zero after a big spinal fusion? Well, obviously you and I and our, our listeners know that sleep is very important in all aspects of life. And just getting that little bit more sleep that first night can set you up for a very successful hospitalization. I think that you can look at the PCA use in multiple different ways. I think people talk about that on rounds in their pain management team. Oh, how many milligrams did they use? That might give you an indication of whether their pain control was adequate. But you also have to look at the pattern of the button press. Multiple button presses in a very short period of time indicate that the patient is very uncomfortable and almost is in a pain panic mode. But when you see intervals that the button wasn't even touched at all, our assumption is the patient's asleep or at least comfortable and not restless and obviously not using the morphine. So we thought that with the clonidine, we can get a better overall wellness picture the first night, and that translates into a shorter and um, more satisfactory hospitalization. Yeah, perfect. And, um, you know, a multimodal approach to pain management is certainly a, a hot trend, as you mentioned, and, and a good trend in post-operative analgesia after spine surgery. The use of anti-inflammatories as part of that protocol could certainly be an entire podcast discussion on its own. And unfortunately, we don't have time to go into too much depth on the topic right now. But briefly, which side of the fence do you land on, Dr. Shaw, when it comes to regular use of NSAIDs after posterior spinal fusion? We use NSAIDs routinely, both in the IV form and the oral form. We've been using NSAIDs in the IV form, Ketorolac, about 0.5 milligrams per kilogram every eight hours since 2010. And so all of the patients in this study had Toradol. Uh, and then we've also been using it orally right before they leave. And then we suggest that it be used by the parents orally as well in the postoperative period outpatient to wean them off of narcotics. So we're fans, we're well aware of the side effects, but in our patient population, we think that it's very effective. Perfect, that's, that's good to hear. And I know this study was looking at more of the immediate post-operative period while the patients are in the hospital, but looking at kind of discharge medications, you know, the clonidine patch stays on for seven days. And as you just mentioned, you do use some anti-inflammatories for patients to go home with. Are there other uh, medications that you send them home with and kind of what's the expected time frame that they would use those medications for? Yeah, the gabapentin is really inpatient only. I'm not resistant to sending them home on it, but we just want to make things simple for the parents. I think the, the simpler you can make things, the more successful they'll be at home. So they do go home on oxycodone and Valium, and we explain the differences and how to use that. And they do go home with a stool softener, and we recommend the use of anti-inflammatories as well as Tylenol as bridge medications to get them off the narcotics. Our goal is to have patients off narcotics in seven to 10 days. And we did a previous study, which you're probably aware of uh, in GBJS, looking at whether, and this was a, a few years ago now, whether we're sending patients home with too many medications and too many narcotics. And the answer was, Yes. In fact, they weren't using 50% of the medications we were prescribing because we were just giving them too much. And now mandated by state law, we're only allowed to prescribe seven days of narcotics. So I think that all of this happened in a, in a perfect storm. We were interested in using less. Parents are interested in using less. And state law now mandates that we give less. So I think this trend of using less medications postoperatively hasn't resulted in, a, in any less satisfaction, any more return to the hospital or emergency room for more pain medication, or even for that matter, any more refills. Our nurses get very few calls for refills, even with just a seven-day regimen. 
great report and you know a lot of interesting thoughts on better pain control and decreasing opioids and the side effects that come from those and you know this study cohorts finished up in 2015 and since that time is there other things that you guys have been trying in the form of medication with some of the long acting you know local anesthetics other non pharmaceutical modalities that you guys have tried Yeah, um, we did participate in a clinical trial, which was a randomized trial of a liposomal encapsulated bupivacaine versus bupivacaine alone. Uh, The results of that study aren't known, but there may be some promise there. I think also what's really changed is our education of parents and families, their expectations. I think if we manage their expectations that you will most likely go home between post-operative day two and post-operative day three, You will most likely be off of your narcotics between seven and 10 days. It gives them goalposts to shoot for. And no one wants to be average, right? And so they want to meet these targets just like we want to meet targets in surgeon performance and length of stay. So I think it's all working together. What's helped is lay people's understanding that narcotics are not all good and that we really need to limit them just for severe pain and make use of those medications very judicious. That's wonderful. Dr. Shah, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today and sharing some insight and some even additional evidence and background to support a multimodal pain control after spine surgery. Great. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Josh. Interesting article. I personally plan to sit down with my anesthesia colleagues to discuss the addition of clonidine to our protocol. We already use gabapentin among various other drugs, and we've had a lot of success with multimodal pain control, but uh, it's always nice to improve. Next, I'll turn things over to our co-host, Craig Lauer, to discuss an article comparing the pros and cons of various techniques for limb lengthening. Hi, this is Craig Lauer, broadcasting from University of North Carolina. I'm going to discuss today an article entitled Lengthening with Monolateral External Fixation versus Magnetically Motorized Intramedullary Male and Congenital Femoral Deficiency from Dr. John Herzenberg's group at the Sinai Hospital in Baltimore. As a little bit of background, femoral lengthening is commonly needed in congenital femoral deficiency, and it can be performed via external fixators or magnetically controlled internal lengthening nails. So the purpose of this study was to compare clinical outcomes between two groups treated with either method. Their methods included retrospective review of 62 patients with congenital femoral deficiency who had femoral lengthening, and their analysis looked at the lengthening achieved, the arc of motion, and the complications. As for results... There were 62 patients with greater than 30 in each group. The fixator group was a little bit younger, 9.4 mean age versus 15.4 years. They also had longer follow-up in the fixator group, 4.5 years versus 1.9 years. The fixator group had similar lengthening and consolidation parameters to the intramedullary nail group. The intramedullary nail group had less complications overall, but when you break it down by type of complication, this increase was accounted for entirely by the difference in pin site infections, as the rates of other complications were similar between the groups. The intramedullary nail group also had better range of motion at the end of the distraction phase and at the end of the consolidation phase, but the range of motion at final follow-up was roughly equal between the two groups. The limitations of this study are that it is retrospective in nature and that there is a clear difference in the populations they are comparing given the younger age and the longer follow-up of the fixator group. That said, due to less pin site infections and the maintained range of motion throughout treatment, the authors suggest that the intramedullary nail offers significant advantages over its predecessor in this population. The authors recognize that it's not possible to use this strategy in all patients, as placing an intramedullary device in patients younger than 9 years of age has some inherent problems. Despite its limitations, this work represents valuable research on emerging technologies in our field. Thanks, Craig. Next, we'll go to Julia Sanders for a conversation with an author, about tibial spine fractures and just how often is there an associated ACL injury. This is your co-host, Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital Colorado, 
and I'm here with Dr. Armando Vidal from the Stedman Clinic in Vail. Dr. Vidal will be discussing with us his paper entitled Anterior Cruciate Ligament Injury at the Time of Anterior Tibial Spine Fracture in Young Patients, an Observational Cohort Study. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks, Julia. I'm really excited to uh, talk a little bit about this uh, article that we uh, recently published and uh, talk about our findings in regards to ACL injury and anterior tibial spine fractures. Thanks for having us on the podcast. Absolutely. Well, first, could you share with us what inspired you to look at anterior tibial spine fractures and their relationships to ACL? Absolutely. So when I was a resident in special surgery, gosh, eons ago now, Dr. Warren would always talk about that anterior tibial spine fractures when they occurred and the aging athletes, so late in adolescence or young adults, uh, that those were ACL injuries. And the older they got, the, the more typical it was to see uh, ACL involvement and ACL ligamentous compromise. Um, as you know, I spent quite a bit of time at University of Colorado and at Children's Hospital Colorado, and we managed a lot of these patients, and I started noticing that a lot of these patients went on to subsequent ACL injury and subsequent ACL reconstruction. At the time, my practice was unique because I was taking care of kids and adults on both sides of the street. So I got to see the whole spectrum and I got to see some of these kids at three years, four years, sometimes even 10 years out. And I said, you know, this is something we should probably look at. A lot of people talk about residual laxity after anterior tibial spine fractures, but not a lot of people talk about the conversion rate to ACL reconstruction. And that was a question that was very practical and that a lot of patients and more importantly parents would ask when you would see these kids. They would say, well, doc, what's, what are the odds that this is my son or my daughter is going to require an ACL reconstruction, and I didn't have an answer. And I said, this is something we should look at. We have a pretty robust database. We have a very broad population of patients to study, and that's really what inspired us to look at this particular issue. That makes a lot of sense. It's definitely a question that comes up in clinical practice. So specifically for the patients included in your cohort, what was your treatment algorithm? Well, that's what was unique. You know, we didn't have a treatment algorithm per se. We have, you know, almost 20 year spectrum of ACL, or sorry, anterior tibial spine injured patients that were treated at Children's Hospital of Colorado. These were treated by pediatric orthopedists, they were treated by sports medicine specialists, they were treated by pediatric orthopedists with sports medicine, some specialty training. So it was a wide variety of different providers that would see these patients. You know, in general, the paradigm of type 1s were treated non-operatively with cast immobilization. Type 2s were treated non-operatively if they could be reduced and if they didn't have concomitant injury. And most type 3s were treated operatively, but they varied quite a bit. And it varied based on surgeon preference, on presence or absence of finding on MRI. And even the type of surgical intervention, whether it was arthroscopic or open, varied based on surgeon preference, experience, and training. So obviously we couldn't standardize for this over this study period, which I think was about 16 years, but we felt that it was real world. These were, you know, patients that were treated at a very busy tertiary care children's hospital. We felt that this really reflected, you know, the, the true incidence of these ACL injured patients. And fortunately, the, the other power of having such a big group is that we had one of the largest cohorts of anterior tibial spine fractures published in the literature. So we felt that, you know, there wasn't one set treatment algorithm for these patients. Most of us were philosophically aligned with how we manage these, these cases. Yeah, it's always tough when you have a, a variety of practitioners, but you obviously have a great database to work from. So what did your group find regarding these ACL injuries in this patient group? Well, it's interesting. I think uh, what opened my eyes is that Dr. Warren was right. As these kids got older, there was a higher risk that they had intrinsic ACL damage. And, and again, I've treated these in kids, but I've also had the benefit of treating these in adults. 
And the majority of the adults that I've seen with these injuries, and obviously these are less common in adults, have significant intrinsic ACL injuries. So what we found was that the males and the older adolescents had a much higher risk of intrinsic ACL damage. And about 20% of these kids had intrinsic ACL damage visible either arthroscopically or by MRI. And what we also found is that MRI actually wasn't a great modality to really evaluate for intrinsic ACL injury. That's really interesting stuff. And, you know, one of the the more interesting things to me was the male predominance with these injuries, since we know that isolated ACLs are more common in, in females. What do you think contributes to that trend specifically? That's a great question. I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I think we... We've added this around once we have the data because we said, gosh, this doesn't really necessarily gut check. So I, I think there, there are a couple possibilities. You know, one possibility is that it's a statistical anomaly. I think the other possibility and what we surmise is that we know that as in the older male adolescent that they are, they're stiffer, right? And you see that in your clinical practice, female athletes in that age group tend to have more ligamentous laxity. There's objective criteria that have shown or studies that have shown that older male adolescents have less laxity on instrumented studies such as the KT. So we, we essentially postulated that maybe these boys have stiffer ACLs and as a result, this ACL one transmits the load to the tibial spine and results in these higher grade tibial spine fractures. But true, that maybe somehow that stiffness of that ACL is resulting in more intrinsic ACL damage. It has less play in it. And so we think it's that, but we really don't know. Well, that's super cool. And I'm sure there's more questions that'll come up in research going forward with that. So with the findings that we've discussed, what would you recommend to our listeners who are treating young patients with anterior tibial spine fractures? So this, to me, helped me answer the question that I couldn't answer for parents. And I think we all, none of us like to get asked questions by parents and not know the answer and say, I just don't know. So that question of, Doc, what's, what are the odds that my son or daughter is going to require an ACL reconstruction, it helped me to answer it. And what I, the way I approach it now is I say, gosh, you know, if you're, if you're younger, if you're that 8 to 12 category, the likelihood is you're probably not going to have a lot of intrinsic ACL damage. If it's a lower grade injury, like a type 1, you're probably not going to have a lot of intrinsic ACL damage. And I think that, God willing, this will translate into a, a knee that functions normally and will not require any further intervention. But the converse is true, too. I say, gosh, you know, if, if they're older, if they're in their teens, if they're male, there's a, there's a decent chance there's going to be some intrinsic ACL damage. And if we see that on MRI or arthroscopically, there's about a 1 in 5 chance of that 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 needs ultimately going to require an ACL reconstruction in the future. And that to me is a very concrete number. You know, I, I tell folks, you know, 80% chance are not going to require anything, but there's a one in five chance, which is a pretty meaningful number that further intervention is going to be required in the form of an ACL reconstruction. So for me, I think it's, this study helps in counseling patients and parents, and it allows you to be able to answer that question that many of us couldn't answer before. Yep, that's super helpful. Just very, just invaluable information, I think, to give to give our families. So thank you again so much for joining us and sharing your research and insights. Well, my pleasure, Julia. And thanks for having me on the podcast. And it's uh, uh, just really an honor to be able to be part of this. And uh, thank you very much. Thanks, Julia and Dr. Vidal. Very interesting article. And lastly, we're going to hand things back over to Craig Lauer at UNC Chapel Hill to discuss ultrasound findings in Ortolani positive hips. Hi, this is Craig Lauer. I'm back with you to discuss an article entitled Ultrasound Characteristics of Clinically Dislocated but Reducible Hips with DDH from lead author Brendan Strino and senior author Woody Sankar, both from CHOP. This is in conjunction with the International Hip Dysplasia Institute. 
As for background, the relationship between ultrasound measurements and clinical findings such as Barlow or Ortolani testing is a bit unclear. The purpose of this study was to describe ultrasound characteristics of a large cohort of clinically dislocated but reducible hips or those defined as Ortolani positive by their examiner. So the methods included a retrospective review of a prospective database within the IHDI. Any patients that were described by their examiner to have Ortolani positive exam and then no prior treatment and with full data available were included. This totaled 325 hips amongst 267 patients for an average age of the patient of 1.1 months old. The analysis just looked at the femoral head coverage on ultrasound as well as the alpha and beta angles. As for their important results, femoral head coverage range anywhere from 0% coverage or fully dislocated to 60% coverage. The median coverage was 10%. And if you look at 90% of the population and where that cutoff lies, 90% of them were less than 33% covered. I'll also point out the alpha angle measurements that they had. This range anywhere from 15 degrees to 68 degrees. The median alpha angle was 43 degrees in this population. So the limitations here are that this is a multi-center study, meaning it's got potential non-standard ultrasound technique and measurements between the different groups. This is also in a way a strength because amongst our different centers, a lot of us vary in our protocols. And so there's likely someone included in the study who does it the way you do. Um, the other limitation is more to the nature of this problem than that a dislocated hip that's reducible um, doesn't really have a set absolute position. And so the radiographic numbers seen on ultrasound may not necessarily be important or reducible. And this is best demonstrated by the fact that some hips on ultrasound demonstrated have 60% coverage, meaning clearly they're reduced on that ultrasound, although they were clinically described as being dislocated yet Ortolani positive. The takeaway here is that this is the first step towards correlating our clinical exam finding to an ultrasound femoral head coverage number. So based off a 90th percentile cutoff, dislocated hips can be said to have femoral head coverage of 0 to 33%. Located is traditionally considered anything greater than 50%. Therefore, this paper would propose that you have a subluxated hip if your femoral head coverage is anywhere between 33 and 50%. Now, clearly, this needs to be further validated with a full population sample, but it's a good first step towards normalizing these radiographic parameters so that we can all communicate and facilitate multi-center research. Thank you, Craig. That's it for this month, and thanks to everyone for joining us. We hope you've learned something, and we'll see you next time.